Hey, future doctors. Thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Ria Mulherker. I'm currently a medicine intern in Philadelphia, and I will be your host today. In this episode, I would like to discuss anticoagulant and antiplatelet agents. Um, I found that these drugs were very tricky to understand when I learned them for the first time, just because there were so many different drugs, a lot of different mechanisms, and it seemed like the textbooks would really highlight the importance of certain drugs, and I couldn't really make the connection from memorization for my pharmacology class to actual application in the real world. So my goal in today's episode is to kind of review the blood thinners, um, both anticoagulant and antiplatelet drugs, in a straightforward and accessible way. We won't necessarily be going over all of the exact intricate mechanisms and the biochemical pathways, although I'm sure you did need to know those at some point. Um, But the objective really is to categorize these agents in your mind and have a good idea of common ways that they are used in practice so that as you transition from the books to the wards, you can kind of, you know, make that connection. As I go through these things, I will try to highlight certain pearls that show up not only in exams, but also in your clinical rotations. And as always, I'm going to go through this topic in a Q&A format. So I'll take a lot of pauses, ask you guys to think about what you remember from your studies. Um, and I really encourage you to participate actively and at least try to think of the answer, because uh, I think that's a really great way to, um, to, to remember things. All right. And with that, let us get started. When I say anticoagulant and antiplatelet drugs, what kind of drugs are we talking about? What do we mean by anticoagulation? Let's start with that. So anticoagulation, you typically think about your blood thinners. These are drugs that actually stop the coagulation cascade. Um, If you'll remember the coagulation cascade, there's an intrinsic pathway and an extrinsic pathway, and they both end up meeting at factor 10. And from there, you go into um, the common pathway of anticoagulation. So blood thinners or anticoagulants are drugs that interfere with that coagulation cascade in some way. And then how about antiplatelet agents? What do we mean by that? So if you'll remember, after the anticoagulation or after the coagulation cascade occurs, there are certain factors that are released that activates platelets and cause platelets to aggregate and form a full clot. So that's kind of the second phase of forming a blood clot. And so antiplatelet agents are going to inhibit the function of platelets. Now, these drugs obviously work in inherently different ways, and so they have different uses and different indications. So I'd like to start by discussing anticoagulation and then move on to the antiplatelet agents. So when I say anticoagulation, what drugs come to mind? I think classically people will think of drugs such as heparin or warfarin. Uh, These are kind of the classic anticoagulant drugs. When would we want to use these drugs? So there's a few different reasons. Um, One of the main ones that comes to mind is anytime there is a clot. So the clot could be a DVT, a deep venous thrombosis in the legs or arms, 
or when there is a pulmonary embolism. And pulmonary embolisms usually come from DVTs. So if you have evidence that somebody has a clot, whether it is in the extremities, um, in the deep veins, or a pulmonary embolism, that's definitely a good time to start anticoagulation. Um, Another really good reason is in patients with atrial fibrillation, if they have a certain score, like a, it's called a CHADS-VASC score. Um, this is something that you'll learn more in your clinical rotations. But if patients have um, meet certain criteria in atrial fibrillation, they have certain risk factors, you tend to start them on anticoagulation. For what reason? It's stroke prophylaxis. So remember, patients in atrial fibrillation, that that atrium isn't moving appropriately. It's not contracting in a rhythmic way. It's kind of just fluttering all over the place. And that causes the blood that's in the atrium to kind of come to a slow, it, it, be, it becomes more stagnant and that increases your risk for forming a clot. And so if they do end up forming a clot, then it's possible for them to throw it out of the heart and it ends up lodging in one of the smaller vessels in the brain causing a stroke. So that is why, just a quick review for atrial fibrillation, we also give anticoagulation as stroke prophylaxis if their atrial fibrillation um, is risky enough, and we determine that based on a clinical score. So PE, DVT, stroke prophylaxis for atrial fibrillation, and then, you know, there are other reasons as well, but another one that, a big one that comes to mind is immediately following a myocardial infarction. So it kind of depends on the situation. Sometimes if patients have, let's say, an NSTEMI, we might just start them on heparin um, and take them to the cath lab later. Um, If they have a STEMI, we're obviously taking them to the cath lab more urgently. Um, But anticoagulation is used early in MIs. And then sometimes patients will be kept on anticoagulation longer, but this really depends on the situation. This is, again, beyond the level of step one. Um, but sometimes it depends on if they already have stents, if this is a clot that happened within a stent that already exists, and so on. Um, But that is a decision that the cardiologist will make. Um, I think for your purposes, you just need to know that immediately following an MI, anticoagulation is often used. So then what are our choices for anticoagulation? Like what drugs could we use? So we said some of the ones earlier. Um, heparin. You can also use a form of heparin, a different form called low molecular weight heparin. Um, Warfarin is another one that we mentioned. And then there's a few other ones. So there are certain drugs which are called the direct thrombin inhibitors, if you remember back to your pharmacology class. So those drugs, the direct thrombin inhibitors, have names like bivalirudin, argatroban, dabigatran. They directly inhibit thrombin. And then there are factor 10A inhibitors. These drugs, the factor 10A inhibitors, actually have the Roman numeral 10, which is an X, as well as an A in the name. So XA will be in in that drug name. So factor 10A inhibitors include apixaban, which is, uh, the brand name is Eliquis, and rivaroxaban, and the brand name is Xarelto. I'm going to try to stick to the generic name for the purposes of our uh, podcast, but I think it's a good idea to have some familiarity with the brand name just because it does come up a lot 
in practice. So apixaban is Eliquis and rivaroxaban is Xarelto. And these drugs are called, you'll hear them called DOAX or NOAX. That stands for direct oral anticoagulation or novel oral anticoagulation. These are actually used a lot in the outpatient setting, um, and you'll see why when we talk about the limitations of heparin and warfarin, why these drugs are just a lot more convenient. So when I was learning these, I always got very confused about when I needed to use which agent, and so I'd like to go through the anticoagulation and kind of discuss each drug in a little bit more detail. So let's start with heparin. How does heparin work? The mechanism of heparin is activation of antithrombin, which then goes to inhibit factor 2A, which is also known as thrombin, as well as factor 10A. And then how do we give heparin? So heparin is given intravenously, okay? Um, the good thing about heparin is that it has a very rapid onset as well as... Um, a very short half-life. So it's rapid on, rapid off, and that makes it a very, very useful drug to use in the hospital setting because it can easily be started and stopped. So obviously you don't want to start any blood thinner in a patient who has a contraindication, such as a recent history of a major bleed or a current active bleed, like let's say they had a hemorrhagic stroke. You probably wouldn't want to just start them on an anticoagulation right away. But let's say you do start them on a drug uh, that is a blood thinner, and then they subsequently develop some kind of bleeding, such as GI bleeding. Heparin is very useful to start in the hospital setting because when you turn off heparin, it has a very short half-life and it disappears from their body very quickly. And so you can, you can kind of come off heparin just as easily as you can start the heparin. When are some reasons that we would use heparin? So kind of like what I just said, let's say a patient comes in and they're newly being diagnosed with a pulmonary embolism or a deep venous thrombosis. Heparin is a really great drug to kind of immediately start in the hospital. And oftentimes in the emergency room, patients will be started on heparin right away when they're diagnosed with a clot. Sometimes patients who are on chronic anticoagulation as an outpatient, let's say they're on one of those DOAX that I mentioned, apixaban or rivaroxaban, they'll be actually switched to IV heparin for perhaps to prepare for a procedure um, or to kind of trial heparin if there's some kind of risk of bleeding. So how do we know if we're giving enough heparin when we actually give it? Like how do we know that it's having a blood thinning effect? So with heparin, you actually have to monitor one of the labs. Do you know what lab we monitor? We use the partial thromboplastin time, or the PTT. So remember that PTT is kind of a measure of the intrinsic pathway of anticoagulation. And heparin, through its mechanism, tends to affect the intrinsic factors more. Um, and you don't have to remember all the specific details, but I would just know that PTT is the lab that's used to monitor heparin. And then, can heparin be given any other way besides intravenously? 
So not really, but there is a version of heparin called low molecular weight heparin that can be given subcutaneously. So the difference is that patients who are getting heparin, they need to have an intravenous access at all times and have they literally be connected to an IV. Whereas the low molecular weight heparin can be given subcutaneously, and that means that it can be injected. So there are a subset of patients who get low molecular weight heparin injected even as outpatients, and it's kind of the same as getting injected with insulin at that point. So what are the low molecular weight heparin drugs called? What are the names of these drugs? Do you guys know? The most common one is enoxaparin. The brand name is Lovenox. So enoxaparin is a low molecular weight heparin. Um, and this one predominantly acts on factor 10A, less so on um, thrombin. And then the other one is fondaparinix. This one actually only acts on factor 10A. And the way you can remember that enoxaparin and fondaparinux are low molecular weight heparin is that they have the... A-P-A-R-N. So everything after the hep in heparin, literally in the name. So enoxaparin, fondaparinux, these drugs are low molecular weight heparin. And there's two good things about them. The first good thing is that they can be given subcutaneously, so you don't need IV access. And the second amazing thing is that you don't actually have to monitor any labs. Now, these do have a longer half-life, so they're not as quick on and quick off as heparin, and that is definitely something to keep in mind. Another question for you guys. Can you use heparin or low molecular weight heparin in pregnant women? The answer is yes. Uh, This is also a really good thing to know. Heparin is kind of a large anionic acidic polymer, And as a result of its structure, it does not cross the placenta. That applies to Lovenox as well as heparin. And so because of that, um, it doesn't cross the placenta, and so it's safe to give in pregnant women. Now, I have a little case for you guys to kind of think about. Let's say a 60-year-old male who has a history of coronary artery disease and actually recently underwent bypass surgery is now coming in with shortness of breath. His labs show platelet count of 82,000. And just nine days ago when he was discharged, you can see in the chart that his platelet count was 225,000. When you look at a CT scan with contrast, there is actually bilateral pulmonary embolism. What is the diagnosis in this patient? So I'm thinking about heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, or HIT. Do you guys know how heparin-induced thrombocytopenia happens? So what happens is patients will develop IgG antibodies against heparin-bound platelet factor 4. And this heparin-bound platelet factor 4 is actually something that activates platelets. And so heparin-induced thrombocytopenia is interesting because you get lower platelet counts because you're activating something, these antibodies that actually cause platelets to be broken down. 
But at the same time, the platelets are activated. And so the platelets that you do have have an increased tendency to form clot. So you get both thrombosis and thrombocytopenia, which is a little bit paradoxical. And what are the clues for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia? How do you diagnose it? So there's kind of four T's to diagnose heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. These are thrombocytopenia, thrombosis, the timing of these symptoms, and then the last one is kind of weak, but the T and other, no other causes that could explain what is happening. And you don't need to know the specific criteria and like what exactly, you know, how much your platelets need to drop, how how many days needs to be from your heparin exposure. But those are kind of just know that those are the general criteria we use, thrombocytopenia, thrombosis, timing, no other causes. Um, and then you can always look up on different scoring systems if they truly meet the criteria for HIT. In our case, I, although I didn't say it, you can assume that the patient did have a heparin exposure whenever he had his bypass surgery. Um, and so it can get kind of tricky there. But um, basically, if they have heparin-induced heparin exposure um, and then they develop thrombosis and thrombocytopenia at the appropriate time interval, you start cluing into a diagnosis of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Do you guys know the treatment for HIT? So number one is obviously to just stop heparin or heparin products if they're on low molecular weight heparin. And then you can actually give them something else because they still need anticoagulation because they still have clots. So do you know what you can give them instead of heparin? You can give them a direct thrombin inhibitor, such as our gatroban. So if patients have HIT, you typically stop the heparin or low molecular weight heparin and you switch them to our gatroban. And then do you guys know any agent that can reverse the effects of heparin? So protamine sulfate is something that can reverse heparin. So let's talk a little bit more about the direct thrombin inhibitors. What are the drug names of direct thrombin inhibitors? Bivalirudin, argatroban, and dabigatran. There's a mnemonic that I got from First Aid, which I really like. Um, we give the direct thrombin inhibitors when heparin is bad for the patient. And BAD, B-A-D, stands for bivalirudin, argatroban, dabigatran. So it's kind of a way to remember the direct thrombin inhibitors. Do the direct thrombin inhibitors require any kind of lab monitoring? Nope. So, so far, um, the direct thrombin inhibitors and even low molecular weight heparins like enoxaparin or Lovenox, they do not require lab monitoring, just the heparin. And what lab value do we use to monitor heparin again? That's the PTT. Very good. So let's move on then to talk about the DOAX or NOAX, the direct oral anticoagulants or novel oral anticoagulants. The names of these are apixaban and rivaroxaban. And just to kind of test your memory, do you remember what the brand names of these are? So apixaban is Eliquis and rivaroxaban is Xeralto. What is the mechanism of these drugs? How do they work? They work by binding and inhibiting factor 10A. And again, remember that they have 10A or Roman numeral XA in the name. 
apixaban and rivaroxaban, and that's how you can kind of remember their mechanism. They're 10A inhibitors. When are they used? Why would we want to use them ever? So these drugs are really great when patients require long-term anticoagulation. Um, and the reason they're great is because, first of all, they do not require any lab monitoring. And second of all, they're taken orally, so you don't need to be stuck to an IV like for heparin or injecting yourself in the belly like for Lovenox. So they're oral, so easy to take, and they don't require any lab monitoring. So they're actually very, very convenient. Um, oftentimes, you'll see that these drugs are used in patients when they're discharged from the hospital. So let's say a patient comes in with a new pulmonary embolism or new onset AFib. Oftentimes on admission, you'll see them started on either heparin or enoxaparin. And then when they're discharged, they're discharged on either apixaban or rivaroxaban. So that brings us to the very last anticoagulant I'd like to talk about. And that is warfarin. What is the mechanism of warfarin? So warfarin works by inhibiting this enzyme called vitamin K epoxide reductase. This enzyme is responsible of gamma carboxylation of vitamin K, and it basically converts vitamin K to its reduced form. The reduced form of vitamin K is then going to be used as a cofactor to activate a bunch of different factors. So just to kind of summarize, Warfarin inhibits the enzyme that reduces vitamin K, which is needed to activate a bunch of cofactors. And do you guys know what those cofactors are that vitamin K activates? This is really important to know. So factors 2, 7, 9, and 10 in the coagulation cascade all require vitamin K for activation. And then there's two other things that vitamin K is used to activate. These are protein C and S. So 2, 7, 9, and 10 are clotting factors. And then protein C and protein S are actually anticoagulant factors. So those factors inhibit clotting. So it activates both types of things. Do you guys know the half-life of warfarin? It is actually days. It lasts in your system for a long, long time. And how about the start time of warfarin? Also days, so it takes time for this mechanism to come into action because think about it. If you think back to the mechanism, the factors that you want to inhibit are already activated and working. So it takes time for their half-lives to kick in and them, those factors to be broken down. And therefore, it takes time for warfarin to have its effect as well because it's not directly blocking the factors. It's kind of in, you know, inadvertently blocking the factors. So one thing to keep in mind is that protein C and S actually have shorter half-lives than the clotting factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. What do you think that means for us? What does that mean when it comes to using warfarin? So it's a little scary because what it means is initially when you start warfarin and nothing else, you're actually initially only stopping the anticoagulant factors, protein C and S, which actually makes you hypercoagulable initially. It's a very tricky concept to wrap your mind around, but 
basically, if we stop only protein CNS initially because they have the shortest half-lives, then we're not stopping the clotting factors, but we're also stopping the thing that helps us prevent clotting. And so we actually get initially hypercoagulable. So if you start warfarin in a patient at very high doses and they're not on any other kind of agent, such as heparin, what can happen is they become so hypercoagulable, you actually get skin and tissue necrosis within the first few days. Again, if they're given a large enough dose of warfarin, because it can lead to clotting in the small vessels of their skin. You might get a practice question where they show a picture of some black necrotic skin And in the history, you find out that the patient was recently started on high doses of warfarin or they've been ingesting rat poison because, of course, that is where we get warfarin from. Now, when we give warfarin, do we have to monitor labs for its efficacy? The answer is yes. And do you know what lab we monitor? So warfarin actually acts on the extrinsic pathway of anticoagulation. And so we monitor the PT or the prothrombin time, which represents the extrinsic pathway. In actual practice, the PT is represented as something called the international normalized ratio or the INR. Um, And INR is just a measure of PT. It's just on a different scale to make it a little bit easier. So the way I remember this is that for warfarin with a W, We use the extrinsic pathway and we use the PT to monitor. So W-E-P-T spells WEPT. So just remember WEPT. Warfarin acts on the extrinsic pathway and we use the PT to monitor that. And a substitute for PT is the INR. So keeping that in mind that we use the INR to monitor warfarin, as well as the fact that you know, initially warfarin in high doses can actually make you hypercoagulable. When we do give warfarin, we usually have to give some kind of a bridging therapy. So let's say a patient comes in with new onset atrial fibrillation and for whatever reason you want to start them on warfarin, you usually have to initially start them on either heparin or enoxaparin and keep giving them warfarin every day, but measure their INR every day. And only when the INR is therapeutic do you stop the heparin or the enoxaparin and continue them on warfarin alone. Do you guys know what the target INR usually is for a patient in, let's say, who has atrial fibrillation or a patient who has a history of a um, DVT or pulmonary embolism? What's our target INR usually? The the goal is usually two to three. Um, There's... Some special circumstances where it's higher, for example, if they have a mechanical mitral valve, we usually want to give them warfarin and keep the goal as 2.5 to 3.5, but typically the INR goal is going to be 2 to 3. Let's talk now about how warfarin is metabolized. Do you guys know? So warfarin is metabolized by the cytochrome P450 enzyme. So this is important to keep in mind because there's a lot of drugs that can actually inhibit that enzyme. And if a drug inhibits the cytochrome P450 system, that'll actually increase the effect of warfarin. My next question for you, can you use warfarin in pregnant women? The answer is no, absolutely not. So warfarin 
un- unlike heparin, is actually a very small lipid-soluble molecule that crosses the placenta, and so it's actually teratogenic. So it's a big no to give warfarin in a pregnant woman. And then, as I mentioned before, warfarin's half-life is long. It lasts in your system for days. So if a patient is on warfarin and then they have a GI bleed or something like that, how do we stop? We obviously will stop the warfarin, but we need to give something to reverse it as well because it's going to stay in the system. So what do we give to reverse the effects of warfarin? If you're thinking about vitamin K, that's absolutely true. You could theoretically give vitamin K, but again, it's going to take time to work. Um, It doesn't work immediately. So vitamin K is something that you might want to give, let's say if you're stopping warfarin and you want to reverse their INR in preparation for a procedure such as a colonoscopy, that's fine. But if a patient is actively bleeding and you're worried that they could become unstable because of the bleeding and they have warfarin on board, there's other things you can give that work faster. What are those? So fresh frozen plasma, FFP, which actually has the clotting factors in it, is very useful, and I've seen that given a lot in the hospital. And then another thing you can give is something called prothrombin complex concentrate, or PCC. This is even faster acting. It's something that was more newly approved by the FDA, um, and so that can sometimes come up on boards. Prothrombin complex concentrate, an even faster acting thing that you can give to reverse warfarin. Now, I realize that I've spent a lot of time talking about warfarin and emphasizing that this drug comes with a lot of baggage. Um, There's so many things you have to consider from bridging therapy to monitoring the INR to the long half-life. Why would we ever even give warfarin when we have the novel oral anticoagulants like apixaban, rivaroxaban? They seem much more convenient, a lot less baggage. Why would we even give warfarin? So actually, there are some studies that for certain conditions have shown evidence that warfarin is superior Unfortunately, in a lot of these studies, the DOACs were not even studied, but um, because we have literature evidence that warfarin is better, in practice, we have to use warfarin until there's a study that shows otherwise. So some of these conditions include having an apical mural thrombus, so an actual thrombus in like the ventricle of the heart, um, or an antiphospholipid syndrome, warfarin has actually shown to be better. If you do see a patient who has something like DVT or PE or even AFib and they're on anticoagulation for stroke prophylaxis, if they are on warfarin, I would kind of consider why are they not on another agent? Just because, as we've seen, apixaban, rifaroxaban are so much more convenient. They're a lot less risky as well. Um, And so I, I just think that it's a good idea for you to keep in the back of your mind. You should be asking, why are they not on that? and instead they're on warfarin. So I know that was a lot, um, and we only covered the anticoagulation so far, but before we go into antiplatelets, I just want to give you some major takeaways that you should have gotten from this. So among the anticoagulant drugs, the heparin, the warfarin, and the doax, apixaban and rivaroxaban, are kind of the really big drugs that I want you to use. 
Ideal situation, a patient will come in with a deep vein thrombosis or a pulmonary embolism or new onset atrial fibrillation, and they need to be started on long-term anticoagulation. So at that point, you either start heparin or enoxaparin in the hospital, and then on discharge, you can transition them to apixaban or rivaroxaban. If you absolutely do have to use warfarin, like let's say they have one of those conditions, apical thrombus, antiphospholipid syndrome, also a mechanical valves, I forgot to mention that, then you usually need to start them on warfarin and check their INR. And until that INR is therapeutic, you need to give them heparin or enoxaparin to bridge them to warfarin. And that is because initially, Warfarin actually makes you hypercoagulable um, as opposed to less coagulable. And then if you're going to memorize mechanisms of drugs, I would focus on learning heparin and warfarin and know how to reverse these agents if you need to. Okay, so those are kind of the big things I want you to take away from our discussion on anticoagulation. Let us move on now to antiplatelets, which I promise is going to be a lot shorter. So when would we want to use antiplatelets? Usually in the setting of an MI or a stroke is when we would want to use platelets. So I'm going to go through some of the antiplatelet agents and just kind of ask you about what the mechanism is and the, any special adverse effects if they exist. So aspirin is one of the most common antiplatelet agents we use. What is its mechanism? So aspirin is a cyclooxygenase inhibitor. It inhibits the COX enzyme, which normally causes production of prostaglandins that are then broken down to form thromboxane and prostacyclin, which cause platelet aggregation. So by inhibiting that enzyme, it prevents the production of thromboxane and prostacyclin. Uh, and then we don't get platelet, platelet aggregation. Now, there's a lot of different dosages of aspirin that are available. At what dose do we see the antiplatelet effects of aspirin? So the lowest dose, we can see antiplatelet effects with even just baby aspirin at 81 milligrams. And then the other effects, analgesic, antipyretic, we start to see those effects with higher doses. So usually what happens if you have a patient with a new onset MI, um, they'll probably get a larger dose of aspirin initially, like 325 milligrams, and then they'll be continued on baby aspirin daily. Let's move on then to the next drug. Um, this class of drugs is the ADP receptor inhibitor. So there's a special receptor, the P2Y12 receptor, um, and it's an ADP receptor and there's a special class of drugs that inhibit this receptor because it plays such a critical role in platelet aggregation. What drugs am I thinking of? Clopidogrel is one of them. Prasigrel, ticagrelor, ticlopidine are all the other ones. Um, these drugs are kind of weird names, I think. But if you want to know some brand names, um, some of the common ones you'll see are clopidogrel, which is brand name Plavix and then Ticagrelor, whose brand name is Berlinta. Do you guys know the side effects of the ADP receptor inhibitors? So they can cause sometimes um, TTP, 
or thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. Remember the mnemonic for that disease is fat RN. So you can see fever, anemia, thrombocytopenia, renal failure, um, and the N stands for neurological status. You'll see altered mental status. That can be a side effect. And then there's one special side effect that only ticlopidine has. Do you guys know what that is? It can cause neutropenia. And then the final class of antiplatelets I want to talk about are the glycoprotein 2B and 3A inhibitors. These drugs bind the glycoprotein 2B, 3A inhibitors, which are also involved in platelet aggregation. Do you guys know the names of these drugs? Abciximab, ibtifibatide, and tyrofiban are some of the drugs that are the GP2B, 3A inhibitors. Remember, drugs that end with that AB ending are antibodies. That's what AB means in the end of a drug. So abciximab is, you know, has that ending, and so therefore you must know that it's made of monoclonal antibody fragments. Let's talk a little bit now about when we would actually use the antiplatelets. What do you guys think? So as I said earlier, we usually start these agents in patients who have had an MI or a stroke. Now, something to keep in mind is usually we would want to start with aspirin, but the issue is a lot of people take aspirin prophylactically. So let's say a patient who is already on baby aspirin, taking it every day, develops a stroke. That obviously shows that it's not working, and so we need to start them on something else. Um, and so in these situations, they'll often be switched from aspirin to clopidogrel or something like that. And then patients who have MI, um, when they get a stent placed, they're often started on dual antiplatelet therapy for the first year. So you'll see these patients on both aspirin and clopidogrel for the first year following new stenting. Now there's one class of drug that we didn't really talk about because it doesn't quite fall into either of these categories. This drug actually acts as a thrombolytic agent. Do you guys know what drug I'm thinking of? TPA or Alteplase. What is the mechanism of TPA? So TPA causes conversion of plasminogen to plasmin, and then plasmin ends up cleaving thrombin and fibrin clots. So if you're going to measure lab values, um, you'll see that TPA actually increases both PT and PTT, but it does not affect the actual platelet count. So the bleeding time in patients is unchanged. When do we give TPA? So we can sometimes give it if the patient is having a massive pulmonary embolism, meaning that they have a pulmonary embolism and they're hemodynamically unstable. It's not enough just to put them on anticoagulation. You need to break up that clot, which is causing their blood pressure to get low. So TPA is sometimes given in massive pulmonary embolism if there's no contraindication. How about other reasons? So ischemic stroke, if you know that a patient is having an ischemic stroke um, and they're presenting with a new neurological deficit, you've done the non-contrast CT that shows no bleeding, when would we give TPA? Do we give it in all patients who have an ischemic stroke? No, there's a correct, there's a, there's a certain time window that you have to give TPA within. Do you guys know what that window is? So if a patient was last seen normal, within the last three hours, 
and then they're coming in with these new onset deficits, only then do you give TPA because beyond that three hour window, it hasn't actually shown any any um, efficacy. So we do give TPA in acute ischemic stroke if they were last seen normal within three hours. And then finally, you can give it in a myocardial infarction as well early on. So for example, think of a patient who's coming in with a STEMI and they're in some rural town and they're not able to get to a cath lab within 90 minutes. In that case, you would think about giving TPA instead of getting them to the cath lab. So great job team. If you are still hanging in there and listening to this video, thank you so much. Um, that's kind of all I wanted to talk about with anticoagulation and antiplatelets. I'm not going to go back and do a rapid fire review or anything like that because I know this has been a long episode. Um, I'd just like to say for heparin and warfarin, these drugs are tested a lot. So know all the details about these drugs. A lot of the other ones, I know it's easy to get lost in the details, but we really just want to know generally when we would use them and why we would use them. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really hope that you found it useful. And if you didn't, I would love to hear that. I would love to get feedback on things that I can do to make these episodes more useful, more accessible for you guys. Or if there's a different topic that you'd like me to cover, please reach out to me. You can always go to spoonfulofsugar.org and there's a contacts page. And through that page, you can always let me know if there are other topics that you would like me to make episodes on. And then finally, the contacts page is also a great way to get in touch with me if you're interested in recording an episode and being a part of the Spoonful of Sugar team. So please, please, guys, reach out to me through that contacts page on spoonfulofsugar.org. In the meantime, I wish you guys the best of luck with all your studying. Uh, I hope that you guys are also taking breaks from studying to take care of yourselves and do things that are fun and rejuvenating. And if you're ever studying and feel that SOS feeling coming on, know that Spoonful of Sugar is always here to help the medicine go down.